It is good to be here with you this morning. Thank you to our praise team for leading us. And before uh, we kind of get into this uh, sermon today, I wanted to just uh, remind you uh, or let you know that, yes, uh, many of our kids, our middle schoolers, are headed off to camp up in Wisconsin, uh, Great Escape. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a baptism uh, here at the 9 o'clock and at the 1045. And one of the things that we always do uh, is we ask the congregation at that point, oftentimes with babies, uh, as in today, um, to commit to these covenant children, that we're going to do everything we can to encourage and love and pray and support them. Uh, well, many of these babies that you committed that to um, are now in middle school. They look very different. They're not quite as cute. Um, uh, they're still wonderful and beautiful, but they, 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 they talk back more than they did as babies. At least mine do. Maybe yours don't. Um, but what we, have, we have an opportunity to pray for them this week as they are away. And so we have prayer cards um, that are out of the welcome desk that have uh, a, a single name on it. Um, and so all of them are there. And so we, we, would, uh, and we would ask you to take one of those and just pray for that particular child uh, this week um, as they are at Great Escape from Monday to Saturday, um, that they really would experience uh, Jesus in a new way. Uh, we have two of our kids are going, uh, Megan and I's kids are going, which is great. Uh, we need to just figure out another camp for the two littles to go to. And then this would be the greatest week of the year. Um, but it will be great. So I do encourage you, please do that. Please remember to do that. Well, we have titled this series uh, called Je uh, Seeing Jesus Anew. And uh, we have been going over uh, the gospel of Luke now for uh, probably nine or 10 months, really, uh, slowly but surely making our way through. We may be about halfway through now, if you can believe it. And um, and our hope really has been that you've seen Jesus in new ways. What we've talked about is that it's important periodically to go through one of the Gospels because it is amazing how our view and understanding of Jesus uh, becomes distorted um, by our culture, by the church, and even by ourselves. And so it is really important to kind of keep going back to the Gospels to remembering, oh no, this is exactly who Jesus is. The truth, of course, is, is that we oftentimes like to manufacture Jesus into someone we really want him to be. But as hopefully we know by now, the more that you begin to distort Jesus into who you want him to be, the more you realize that you're just looking in the mirror and calling that Jesus. And so we are really kind of wrestling uh, with that. Now, there are parts of Jesus, quite frankly, that oftentimes we prefer to ignore, uh, and even we in the church do this. There's something called a lectionary that many denominations do. And uh, I used to preach from the lectionary. And basically, it just kind of takes you over three years' time uh, through the vast majority of Scripture. But there are some omissions in this. And I appreciate what N.T. Wright said. He said that, uh, you know, anytime you see an omission uh, in the lectionary, you can kind of rest assured that it probably has to do with judgment. Uh, that we don't really want to hear about judgment very much. Uh, I've done a pretty good job of avoiding it, quite frankly, over the years. And, uh, but when you go through an actual scripture passage all through the gospel, all of a sudden you hit on a passage like today, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, where you realize, oh man, there it is. And I've already had Pastor Stan and Scott preach the last two Sundays. I can't have them preach this Sunday too. So I'm the one who gets to take this on, and I'll, I already apologized uh, to Josh and Kelly who are having their child baptized. This is not exactly the perfect sermon, perhaps, 
on the day when you're baptizing a cute little infant. But again, I think it's significant and important that we understand both the sense of judgment and hell and why it is that Jesus would even speak to this. And so with that, let's hear Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Meanwhile, when the crowd had gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, their hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after killing, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear that one. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you will answer or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us here in this time. Open us up to your words. Help us to hear the depth of your love. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so if you've not been around or if you've forgotten, let me remind you that this section, about nine or ten chapters, something like that, of Luke are all about Jesus marching toward Jerusalem. Jesus is headed toward the cross, headed toward his death. And remember what we've been saying, which is that as he's going towards Jerusalem, you can feel kind of the energy, the emotion beginning to rise because what Jesus understands is that he has got to get these disciples, uh, these flabby, um, disobedient, oftentimes misdirected disciples into good shape so that they can continue the mission that he has begun to talk about the coming kingdom of God. And so you can just imagine that he's, he's doing this. This is kind of a spiritual boot camp of sorts. He's having to get all of these disciples prepared. I always think it's important for us to remember, we've talked about this a little bit, but the humanity of Jesus. I think it's important to just kind of consider all that he was wrestling with at this time. 
right? Not only did he have these disciples and he knew he had to get them in shape because he was you know, going to leave. He had to wrestle with that, the pressure of that. He had to wrestle with, of course, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, oftentimes the crowds who were coming up against him at times. And then on top of all of that, he had to wrestle with his own coming death. I mean, every step he took toward Jerusalem was a step closer to his kind of torturous death. All of this was weighing upon Jesus. But at this particular time in his ministry, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, this is a particularly a popular time for Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that thousands upon thousands were following him, were surrounding him, were wanting to hear from him. So many, Luke tells us, that they are trampling on one another. As one commentator says, you get this sense already that this is just that they, how out of control this crowd is becoming. Now, you know, for most of us, if all of a sudden we had thousands upon thousands of people who were following us and who were gathering around us and who were wanting to hear our words, that would probably make most of us feel pretty special, right? Like this is the moment that we have finally been waiting for, right? Like finally other people realize just how great I am. And that would be what most of us would do, right? But what we oftentimes see with Jesus is that whenever they start talking about how many people are beginning to follow him, whenever it's the crowds are growing, Jesus almost always tries to bring some sober reality to the situation. But the disciples, if you can imagine, if you were a disciple, I have a feeling they were like most of us, right? You could just kind of see them getting more and more excited, right? It is not normal to not want to kind of jump on this band wagon and to be really excited about this. I was listening to, an, you guys know I love Eugene Peterson, and, and here's one of the reasons why. I was listening to an interview with him just recently, not with him, he's passed away with one of his sons, and he was talking about how several years ago now he had this opportunity to go to Brazil to be a keynote speaker uh, for about 40,000 people in Brazil, and you know, you know, again, if, if that were us, you know, we would, we, would, we would feign humility, right? We'd be like, oh, just for me? Okay, all right? But Peterson was really struggling with it. He's like, I don't know if I should do this. And his son was like, what is wrong with you? Why wouldn't you go? What are you afraid of? And Eugene Peterson, he says, just stare, looked at him right in the face, and he said, I am afraid of losing my soul. And so he ultimately ended up not going. Right? This remarkable amount of humility that says, I know that when I start getting more and more popular, all of a sudden things begin to get distorted. And I think that's what we see happening like, likely with the disciples, right? Which is why Jesus, he does not begin by uh, talking to the crowds. We are told specifically he looks to the disciples. And he says to the disciples specifically, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That is their hypocrisy. Now, there's a lot of things that you can do with this uh, kind of uh, metaphor of, of yeast and hypocrisy. Uh, one of them, of course, is that what does yeast do? Yeast makes something grow. It makes it rise, right? It inflates it, right? And you can kind of begin to see how, you know, how living this life of hypocrisy where, where all of a sudden everyone loves you because you're putting on this great face, right? That you're just amazing and all that, how that can begin to inflate you, right? And you can almost begin to see as the crowds surround Jesus, how inflated these disciples are getting. 
Of course, the other thing about yeast is that it tends to just kind of get in everything. You, you kind of can't just put yeast in a little part of it. It, it kind of just infiltrates the whole thing. And a part of what Jesus is also uh, kind of saying here is like with the Pharisees and all, it won't just be in all parts of them, this hypocrisy. It slowly but surely begins to go to the synagogue or for our case, you know, into the church or whatever organization you may be leading or doing any of those things. Slowly but surely, it just begins to creep into everything. I was talking to a couple of ZPCers not long ago who, who, um, who had been reading this devotion. And one of the things that this person who wrote the devotion said is this, is you can, you can teach what you believe, but you reproduce who you are. Now that's actually good for infant baptism today. Um, you can teach what you believe, but ultimately, as much as we were, wish it was different, right, parents? You reproduce who you are. You can be as hypocritical as we want to be and have everyone think, oh, they're so great. But ultimately, children know better than anyone else who you actually are. Amen? It will eventually begin to seep out. No matter what, no matter how much we might want to hide it, that is the truth. And this is exactly what Jesus says will happen. It's fascinating as he moves into this next section Francis Chan says, and I think probably rightly so, this is the only time that he can think of that Jesus really basically repeats himself four times. Let's look at this scripture passage at this part, this verse right here. It says, nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered. That's one. Nothing is secret that will not become known. That's two. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. That's three. And what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. Now, this is not a very comforting message. The vast majority of us have many secrets that we pray never make the light of day. There's one honest person. Good. But what Jesus is saying is no matter how much you might wish that you could hide that. The truth is you cannot. I was funny, just a couple weeks ago, I was talking to somebody else who was my age and we were just kind of talking about how thankful we are that when we were kids, there were no such things as iPhones, right? No such things as cameras that would catch the things that you were doing because as youth, we, most of us do really dumb things. And now, of course, that's there for eternity. But then when I read this passage, I realized I should not have been as nearly as comforted as I thought because God has always had an iPhone. And so there should not be this sense of comfort from this because here's the reality. It should make us feel remarkably vulnerable. That no matter how much we think we can hide, and, and there's truth in that in the present day, of course. I mean, I don't know, you know having grown up in a, in a family that had some secrets, what you understand is that even if that secret is never revealed, anyone who's grown up in a family like that knows that somehow... That secret in some way begins to be insidious and works its way out in relationships and in family. But of course, what Jesus is also saying is not just that it will work itself out, not just that it will be discovered at some point here, but also that it will come out at some point in the future. Which brings us to this next part of this story. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you whom to fear. 
Fear the one who, after killing, has authority to cast into hell. This, of course, is alluding to the reality of the final judgment and to the reality of the consequences of that judgment. Now, the final judgment in hell is not something that we in the Presbyterian church, in the modern day Presbyterian church, really talk about all that much. For some of you, that brings you great comfort. And there are others of you for whom you think, come on, pastor, we should be talking about this a bit more than what we do. Growing up, my experience was that most of the people who talked about Final judgment in hell were Baptists and Pentecostals, right? Which is more of what I was. And they seem to almost enjoy talking about the final judgment in hell. Enjoy might be a little strong, but not much. There did seem to be this great excitement whenever they talked about it. I can remember when I was in college, I went to a Pentecostal college and there was this preacher and he was very famous at this time and he would go around and he would love, in fact, my college roommate, one of them would always love to just, just repeat and say, everybody wanna preach. Everybody wanna prophesy. Everybody wants to sing in the choir, but they don't wanna live right. You gotta get saved. <laughs> and we loved it, right? And there was this direct correlation between living right and being saved. And primarily when they said saved, what he meant was being saved from the flames of hell. And we thought this is what it means to be saved. You know, and you've probably heard this before. I mean, salvation began to be equated with kind of fire insurance, if you will, right? And so we were very fervent then in our faith. I mean, we as 18, 19, 20-year-olds, I mean, we took Jesus really seriously. We were living for Jesus. But the truth in many ways is that we were primarily living for Jesus so that we did not Go to hell. But after some time of living life in perpetual fear of going to hell, I grew so weary that I became Presbyterian. <laughs> you laugh because you know it's true. But Here's the thing. If we want to take Jesus and Scripture seriously, just because one is Presbyterian does not mean that one can simply throw out Scripture when it comes to the final judgment. Rather than just chucking it off as those who are fundamentalists or those who are Baptists or Pentecostals, we should probably try at least and understand why this was so important in Scripture. You know, one of the fascinating things in Scripture when it comes to the final judgment that we likely don't think about all that much is that more often than not, it was something to absolutely celebrate. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, particularly let's look at Psalm 98, the end of Psalm 98, it says this, 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. You're getting the sense, right? It's very exciting. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why would they have looked at the judgment, something that the vast majority of us either don't want to talk about or are deathly afraid of, why would they have looked at the final judgment with joy? Clap your hands! Sing out! Bring out the trumpets and the lyre! When's the last time you heard a good lyre? <laughs> why? Think about it. In Psalms and even into the Gospels, these are Israelites and the Jewish people. And they are under constant oppression. They're slaved, they're tortured at times, they're killed, they have no power, they are constantly abused and taken advantage of, and you tell them that all of a sudden Jesus as the judge is going to come and be able to treat all fairly, that those who have abused them will finally be brought to justice. How do you not pray that the hills would begin to clap with praise? Of course, setting the world right would have been something to look forward to. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, which is a book I've probably mentioned before, but I would really encourage you to read it if you have not. He says this about judgment. He says, you got this, Lynn? Or not, I'll just say it. Judgment is necessary unless we were to conclude absurdly that nothing much is wrong or blasphemy, that God doesn't mind very much all the evil in the world. Or Miroslav Volf, I don't have a quote for it. I don't have it on the slide. Just listen to this. He says, we must learn to conceive of God's judgment as good for a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in, in injustice, in deception, and in violence. When you look around at the world, at the violence, at the oppression, at the injustice, at the abuse, at the arrogance, at all of these things. How can we not yearn for judgment of some sort? Most of us know, right, that if we want reconciliation, you don't get reconciliation from abuse or oppression by just trying to kind of sweep it under the divine rug, as someone has said, and just kind of hugging the abuser who has no sense of, of, of sadness about what he or she has done and says, oh, can we just act like everything is okay? Most of us know that does not work in any of our relationships. And yet we oftentimes like to live in this kind of world where we don't even think about any kind of you know, divine judgment. But no reconciliation can occur 
without the perpetrator being able to admit that what he or she has done has been hurtful or has brought brokenness or pain. To believe or to act otherwise is simply a charade. Which brings us, of course, to hell. Now, in this particular case, and oftentimes in the New Testament, when it speaks of hell, it uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna is, an, is a literal physical place, as you may know. It was on the outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And long before Jesus was there, it was the area where people would worship Moloch, the god Moloch. And when they did that, they would oftentimes sacrifice uh, children as a part of that worship. And so perhaps for that very reason, as it got to Jesus's time, uh, it, it, it actually, Gehenna was just a big trash uh, a heap full of trash. And, and there were constantly these fires that were kind of burning that trash. So that when Jesus is talking about this, this is not to suggest that hell is just simply a metaphor, but it is to suggest that when Jesus was trying to describe what does separation from God actually look like or, or feel like or, or smell like, what's the best word? Gehenna was that word. It is like this. This is what separation from God is like. And Christians over the last 2,000 years have had lots of ideas about what exactly hell is. Right? Some, thinks it's, some think it's just a metaphor. That's not real, right? And, and some even believe this would be kind of universalist. Well, that, no, that, everybody, no, that will never happen. God would never do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. Others, others say, well, we believe more of an annihilationism. They're fire, but then they would just kind of, they would burn up and, and then they would just not exist. And others have, of course, purgatory, as many of you have heard of, kind of this middle place. And others who say, yeah, no, 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 this is just literal hell. And my guess is that, that, that many here either have thought all these things at once time or think these things now. And, and so I bring all of that together, A, to say, look, we're not going to kind of dive into all of that today. This is heavy enough as it is. But I do want to say a few things. One, and this is why this is important. One is this, that whenever you think, I know exactly what hell is and I know who's going there. We should look at this with an enormous amount of humility. The reason why the psalmist was celebrating because the, the judge was coming was not because the judge was you, I can promise you. They knew that it was going to be God. The second thing that I, I, I want to bring up, though, is I, I think that this sense of, of judgment and eternal separation from God, I, I get it. We would love to think none of that's going to happen. In fact, my guess is that there are certainly some of us here who think, oh, no, that's just long ago. It's fascinating, actually. Just yesterday, I read an article in the newspaper that said that, you know, a generation ago, they, they really talked about hell a lot and, 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 uh, and that now we just don't even talk about it at all or don't even talk about this final judgment. I, I get it in many ways, that, that, that desire to just kind of act like that. But again, I, I want you to know, I think that that is, by and large, that is the purview of the privileged and the powerful to kind of think everything's just going to be fine. Because most of us, you know, we've had some bad things happen, but it hasn't been that bad. We haven't lived through the war and through those who have perpetrated it. We haven't lived perhaps through massive abuse. We haven't lived through oppression. We haven't lived through all of those things. So it's, it's fine for us with our Starbucks coffee and our nice cars and our big houses to just think, oh, everything will be fine.
We like to say, well, a loving God could never really judge. He would just kind of just, every, everything's fine. Everything's good. But think about this. Let's think about the definition of love. Think about a parent and a child. Is it love when your child, let's just say, I don't know, robs a bank to say, oh, that's <laughs> so cute when he does that. All's fine. Just do what you want. It's all going to be good. I love it when you do that. No problem. Any of the kind of pantheon of things that our children can do, right? That is that love to just kind of act like it never happened and just kind of sweep it under the rug. I know there are some parents who try that, but it rarely ends well. There is a sense that all of us at some point, we have an opportunity either to be able to admit our own brokenness, which all of us have, our own sin from small thing that we think nobody would ever see to the largest thing that we think we can hide. All of us have that. The truth, of course, is that true deep love is the kind of love that can actually say, no, what you have done is wrong. And no, you can't just force it. We want to think, well, God could just force everyone to love him. As you know, that is not love. That is slavery. And at some point, as C.S. Lewis says, at some point, this God who loves us, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, and who's passionate about us, at some point, and parents... I've seen parents who have to do this with their adult children at some point simply say, thy will be done. N.T. Wright suggests that when human beings refuse all whisperings of good news and all glimmers of the true light and all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God that eventually after death they may no longer reflect the image of God at all. I would love to just think there's no final judgment. It all just ends lovely. But that is to bury our heads to the reality of the deep evil that is in our and to do nothing about that evil is not love at all. I think these thoughts about hell are somewhat connected in many ways to something else that has brought much torture to Christians over the last couple of millennia. And that is the unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks to in this particular passage. If you speak against the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, all will be forgiven, which is a good grace for those like Peter, who before long will speak against him. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, nope, there is no going back. When I was growing up, I was one of those kids who I always loved to kind of push the boundaries. But I was also one of those kids who felt really guilty and scared after I had pushed the boundary. That's not good things. You should be one or the other. 
Because what that meant was things like this. When I first heard this scripture passage, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember that when I heard that about blasting the Holy Spirit, well, you know, you like to push the boundary a little bit. You know, you want to, you know, I, so I would say something that was maybe bad about the Holy Spirit. It was on the edge. You know, it was just kind of like, well, maybe this about the Holy Spirit. And then all night long, I would be scared that I was going to hell. And I would just kind of constantly do this, right? And, and constantly be in this flux of, oh my goodness, have I blasphemed and what is it? And I didn't really know what blaspheming the Holy Spirit was. Now, here's the thing that I find somewhat comforting and somewhat not comforting, which is that when you read theologians today, even they are somewhat confused by what exactly it means. The best guess, a couple different guesses, one is that likely it's, it's when something is happening that is clearly the Holy Spirit, and you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's a Holy Spirit, but you say, no, 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 that's evil. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's evil. But I also like what Daryl Bach says about this sense of, of the Holy Spirit and blaspheming. He says, the difference between blaspheming the Son of Man and blaspheming the Spirit is that blaspheming of the Son of Man is an instant rejection, while blaspheming of the Spirit is a permanent decision of rejection. I, I, I think what this is basically saying is, is this. Like, it's this kind of place where once you blaspheme the Spirit, you only do that after you have really just kept saying no to what N.T. Wright was just talking about. No to all the signposts to God. No to all the opportunities to love God. No to all the opportunities for grace. No to all those things. That That's really the time when you would finally get to the place where you might be able to do that. In fact, theologians say, uh, as I was reading it, the exact same thing that my mom said to me, so perhaps she is a theologian, which was this. Jerry, she said to me, you can say your own name here, if you are worried about whether or not you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, your anxiety is a clear sign that you have not. Because those who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit would have no care whether they had done it or not. Now, I want to close by something that's inserted right here in the very middle of this passage. And it's when Jesus says this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than the sparrows. See, this is the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus is that he loves you so much that he is going to be deeply honest with you. That right there in the midst of this pretty difficult passage, Jesus reminds you because he knows how easily we forget. He reminds us of just how deep his love is. A love that is so deep that there is not one part of our lives that he does not know about and that he does not care passionately about. You see, ultimately, this passage is a passage about deep love. A love that refuses, and we've distorted this definition of love in many ways, a love, that dis, a love that refuses to call evil good. A love that refuses to allow us to go on our own way no matter how much pain 
or brokenness we carry or are giving to others. A love that refuses to enslave us by forcing us to do things beyond what we want to do. A love that knows that reconciliation and peace can only come with painful confession. This is the kind of deep love that Jesus has for us. The God for whom each of us are so loved that he knows the number of, our, of hairs on our head. In the midst of all of this, he says, do not be afraid. Do not ever forget that I am the one who loves you so much that I am willing to go to this cross for you, to suffer for you. This is not a God who loves from a distance or who judges from afar. This is a judge. This is a God who says, I will endure all of this pain for you. And I think that is the message that Jesus would have for us today. My hope would be that we can have a fervency about our life and our faith that is not based on the fear of flames, but on the passionate love of the Jesus who refuses to be God without us who loves us as we are, but loves us far too much to allow us to remain as we are. A God who is not afraid to challenge us out of this love, to shape us and to mold us. And a God who did not die that we might perish but who died that we might understand the richness of life with him. May we experience the depth of that deep love. Might we not be afraid, but might we have the courage to allow God to speak into our lives as perhaps nobody else can or will. For Christ and for his kingdom alone. Amen? Let us pray. God, this is not an easy message, and yet it is a message in which you call us to listen and in which in so many ways should be a relief. The truth, God, is that living a life where we think we can hide from the realities of who we are or our own brokenness or pain is no life at all. It is actually slavery, God. And what you offer us is this opportunity to be as honest as we can be about our sin, our brokenness, our mistakes. Why? Because we know, Lord, that in so doing, do you welcome us into your arms. So I pray for courage 
for courage to know that you are the God who loves and for the courage, Lord, to be honest. It's in your name we pray. Amen.